Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Admiral Joseph Preer. Sometimes, just sometimes, the doors of history open in such a way that one person, at one time, or one moment, seems to have the light of providence shine on him or her. Joe Preer is such a person. He graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy, then flew as a naval aviator in the Vietnam War before beginning his steady rise through the military ranks. He returned to Annapolis in 1989, this time as Commandant of the Naval Academy. After service in senior positions in Europe and the Pentagon, Admiral Preer was given the largest geographic command in the U.S. military, the Pacific Command out in Hawaii, also known as PACOM. At PACOM, Admiral Preer assumed command during a time of friction between the U.S. military and the Chinese People's Liberation Army. Then, in May 1999, a U.S. warplane mistakenly bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. So in his new role as head of the Pacific Command, Preer was given instructions to build channels of regular communications with the PLA. In the aftermath of the Belgrade bombing, Preer was appointed ambassador to China, and those military channels would be tested. On April 1st, 2001, only a few months into the new administration of President George W. Bush, a Chinese PLA Air Force F-8 collided into a U.S. EP-3 surveillance plane off the coast of Hainan Island. The Chinese pilot was killed, and the U.S. plane made an emergency landing on Chinese soil. President Bush spoke at the White House to the American people about the downed plane, calling for China to take action. Now... It is time for our servicemen and women to return home. And it is time for the Chinese government to return our plane. This accident has the potential of undermining our hopes for a fruitful and productive relationship between our two countries. Could the two sides avoid military escalation? Here now is Admiral and Ambassador Joe Preer on his time in the U.S. Navy, at the Pacific Command, on dealing with the People's Liberation Army, and on his invaluable role as U.S. Ambassador during a moment of crisis between the United States and China. If you listen closely, you can hear military jets in the background as they fly practice drills outside of his Virginia Beach home, perhaps a fitting soundtrack to our conversation. Thanks so much for taking time out for this project, sir. It's great to see you again um, after a few few years. Uh, before getting to your long career in the Navy and uh, ambassador to China, I just want to ask, as a boy from Tennessee, how did you end up going to the Naval Academy? The short answer is my father went to the Naval Academy. That's a pretty good reason. And the But my dad was was killed in World War II when I was eight months old, so I never knew him, but that was, that was out there that he had done that. The other short answer is that uh, when I was a senior in high school, I got a letter from Wayne Harden, who was the Navy football coach, 
who uh, said, come try out for football at Navy. And so that was a hook that came, wow. came my way, and I said, well, let's try that. And I had some other opportunities, and, uh, but I ended up going to Naval Academy. Wow. So you went there in, and you graduated in 64. Right. And um, there was a lot of things going on in Asia at, at that time. That's right. Um, and you did a tour in Vietnam, Correct. or two tours. Just one. Just one tour. Yeah. And what was that well, tour? From graduating in 64, I went to flight training. And uh, I, I wanted to fly. And uh, got out of flight training in 65, and then uh, started my active flying in 66. So the Vietnam part, I had a, a one deployment to the Mediterranean, a fairly short one in 66. And then uh, in, was in Vietnam in 67 and 68 on Kitty Hawk during the Tet Offensive. Wow. And uh, it was a very, it was a busy time and a fairly long cruise, but that was my only deployment to Vietnam. But I, uh, I have two months where I did not have a day carrier landing at, at all night work wow. in, in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And so it, it wasn't all, but most of it was. And so uh, it was a very enlightening time. And so you'd mentioned that you were doing uh, aircraft takeoff and landing. What other aircraft had you trained on at that point? Well, going through flight training, we flew the, the I don't know how much of interest this is, but it the T-34 was a, the, our fundamental trainer, and then the T-2C was a, another trainer. And then the, the old Korean War F-9F was the uh, other trainer in Texas. And then I went from there to fly A-6s, which I did in Vietnam. And so for the runs you were doing in Vietnam, um, you have nighttime takeoff and landing. What was the, the activity that you had over land? What were you flying to do? Uh, well, some of it was this, this can rapidly get into a political discussion. But as a 24-year-old Lieutenant JG, I was not very interested in the politics of it there. I was just trying to stay alive and do my stuff. But it, in the bigger view, it was a time when our, our government and uh, McNamara was there, and we would, we would spool up and get where our overland time was We'd beaten down the defensive, they were pretty good, and then we'd stop, we'd have a bombing halt. The Vietnamese would build back up the defenses and create a more hazardous environment. It drove us, it, it was very irksome if you're on there getting shot at. So, uh, but a lot of our targets, some of them were useless, and we, we had one we called a Wiblick, which is a waterborne logistic craft which uh, might range from being a herd of water buffaloes to a barge or something like that, to power plants in North Vietnam. And, and the type of airplane I flew, the A-6, we were doing what was called Roots Package 6. Almost all of it was in the north. And uh, we, we had some fairly worthwhile, some bridges trying to enter, you know, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, we'd, we'd interdict that. And then when we were allowed power plants around Hanoi and Haiphong, oh. mining in Haiphong. And so at that time, uh, 
China was not a uh, not a participant in the conflict overtly, but uh, was there some concern about the conflict becoming too large and China becoming involved? Did that ever enter in in kind of your, the planning, as far as you were aware? Yes, uh, you know I think some of this is subsequent logic, but the idea of the uh, the domino theory and and thinking that there was worldwide communism and Ho Chi Minh was a part of that, China was a part of that, Russia, uh, USSR was a part. Uh, and subsequently I realized, you know, there's a little more national view of that than, than this worldwide domination. But uh, for us, as a practical matter, flying them, you know, right around Haiphong, you don't have to go very much north of there to be in China. To us, that was a you know, a, a, a hard wall. A bright line in the do, sky that not Do to not cross. stray into China, mm -hmm. you know, that you'll disappear forever. And we have, uh, I've got a couple of acquaintances that I know that did do that, and they were in a Chinese prison till the end of the war. Wow. And so it was not a place, we just, we, we took extreme pains not to stray into China. You did a lot of things after that kind of early tour in, in yeah. Vietnam. I yeah. wonder if I could fast forward to your time as the um, commandant of the Naval Academy to just ask, uh, which was uh, 89, 90s, yep, 91. that's right. And the reason I ask is because events in China, because of the Tiananmen Square crackdown, were kind of global issues yeah. and the Cold War was ending. Can you just talk a little bit about trying to lead the a very prestigious part of the Navy during this tumultuous time on the global stage. It's interesting. The Naval Academy is a little bit insular, and the uh, you know people are working very hard there, the midshipmen. And at that time, there were a lot of gender issues as well. Women had been there. The first graduating class, I think, was 1980. So they'd been, and still a very small percentage of the brigade were were women. That getting, helping gender issues move along was a, a big part. Uh, my interest a lot was in watching the, you know, 1989 Tiananmen Square, the fall of the Berlin Wall. I've got a little chunk of the Berlin Wall over there. From when you served in Europe? Uh, no, it was given to me by Bill Owens. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but the, uh, the the midshipmen it being there at that time what was going on in the outside world was not a particular focus it was an interest but the the busyness of uh running the brigade of midshipmen and trying to get that working right beating army things like that were important uh, things in life yeah that's right, right. from there the the i'm curious to hear your experience as the Vice Chief of Naval Operations in 95, in which you were in Washington for less than a year, is that right? That's correct. Uh, and I guess the 95, this is at the end of the Cold War, the Chinese Navy is not particularly strong. Right. Um, you had responsibility for the whole world. What was your focus at that time? Again, uh, being the Vice Chief of Naval Operations is sort of like being a DCM in an embassy in a way it's you're uh, you're 
you're working a lot on the day-to-day -day things. A lot, very much, is dependent on what the CNO uh, wants to do, and it is Washington-oriented. And I had just come back from Europe. I'd been at the Sixth Fleet prior to that job, and uh, I'll, I'll have to throw in here. I, I'm quite proud of the fact that in my 10 years as a flag officer, I only spent seven months in Washington, D.C. I'm, I'm, I do much better as a field hand than I do being uh, in whatever sort of adjective you use to describe what goes on in Washington. Mm -hmm. Right, there's a lot of adjectives these days that people yeah. use. But the significantly, uh, that'll come into our subsequent discussion, is in 95, when the Chinese fired some missiles into uh, near Taiwan, it, in my job as the vice chief, that was not even a blip. You know, it, wow. it, was, it was not something we were thinking about. Uh, it it didn't, didn't impact much, and significantly the United States didn't respond, mm -hmm. either militarily or otherwise, maybe uh, a demarche or something, but that would be about it. So it, it was not significant. So uh, let's move to your time over in uh, Hawaii. So you were in seven months in the Pentagon, and that yeah. got you got your ticket out to, yeah. go, to go to Hawaii. Um, that must have been a nice change of pace. To it, it was. I have thought often uh, it the circumstances by which I went were uh, my my predecessor there had had an, uh, made an unfortunate comment about. Uh, in, in Japan. And so he, uh, Bill Perry, who was Secretary of Defense, said relieve him. They went through a process and finally I was the one that was picked to relieve him. Wow, and so for folks who aren't familiar with the Pacific Command, can you just talk a little bit about the area of responsibility and what the, the commander of, or the, the commander chief of the Pacific Command is charged with doing? Yeah. Uh, the Pacific Command, which is, in those days, we call it SYNCPAC. Uh, Secretary Rumsfeld changed that to make it a combatant command. And, uh, but the, it's the largest AOR area of responsibility in, in the way the United States divvies up things. And it is the, now it's called the Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, Harry Harris, who just left there and is now in Korea as ambassador, uh, was, for doing that, and it's now the Indo-Pacific Command. And it includes uh, the Pacific littoral, it includes the west coast of the United States through Asia and into India, and, and it was India and Pakistan, and then that got divvied up where the line between India and Pakistan Pakistan went to the Central Command, India's still in the Pacific Command. So the, it's uh, a huge geographic area. It's about 310,000 people. You, the arrangement at SYNCPAC in Hawaii has four subordinate commanders that are service commanders, SYNCPAC fleet, which is very confusing to people. I get introduced to SYNCPAC fleet a lot, 
But the sink pack fleet is a Navy four-star. So that's the naval person the in naval charge person of the, of the, of the, the Navy mm -hmm, part there. For folks in the Pacific. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's U.S. RPAC, which is also there in Hawaii, which is the Army people in the Pacific, who are mainly, most of the Army is in Korea. The, there's not a big Army presence otherwise. And then there's the MARPAC, which is the Marine Corps, Part, which we now have some people in uh, northern Australia, a, a small footprint there that wasn't there when I was there. But the Marine Forces in Okinawa and, and all over. And then uh, the PACAF, the Pacific Air Force Command. And the, uh, they have a prominent place in Korea, Japan, all over. And then U.S. Sink Pack, the job I had, has very good help. You know, we have a lot of lot of staff and a lot of people that are that are very good help. And so, the Pacific Command traditionally has been a it's a military command, and the foremost thing is military readiness to carry out the U.S. wishes there. But because you can show up, there is a lot of interaction with other heads of state with uh, ambassadors, and uh, th there's, there's really a lot of political military activity associated with it as well. And now even uh, because the economy part is so vital, and, and even back when I was there, uh, they had the 1997 bot crisis, and uh, I can recall a time with with Stapleton Roy, another China guy, but he was ambassador to Indonesia at that time. We were sitting in the back of his car in, in Jakarta, and uh, I looked at him as a sort of a naive person and said, hey, Stape, uh, you know, this economic stuff seems to be pretty important. What do you know about that? And he said, oh, not much, but we ought to learn. And so <laughs> it, it's that's true. Can you, t can you talk about your... Uh, uh, September 96 and December 97 visits to China and what you felt like you got out of that from the PLA from the US point of view and how you think that building communication helped further US interests. Okay. I, I am one that believes that uh, and I'll give a story an example of this in a moment but that having communications even if they're hostile is very important. I mean a, a I think if people are not communicating and you and there's a there's some subject of tension even if there's nothing going on if you're not communicating you're thinking the worst about the other side so communications are very important to keep going particularly when you uh, have uh, tense relations with a, another entity of some sort and this is the case with China too. I thought the having the communications was very important. The September '96 trip is was uh, thinking now. There's an election coming up in November <laughs> in the U.S. Uh, and in the Clinton administration, they didn't want to be seen to be too close to China. They didn't want. A political person or a political appointee going though Sinkback is a, is an appointee, but they thought I was a I was at the level that could 
could go without having a political cost. So they didn't want a cabinet secretary. No, who was they a didn't want political do. level person. No, to that, kind of that was too show up too tied to Beijing. the administration. But they wanted someone that could could do it. So they said, "Hey, uh, Joe, why don't you go?" So I said, "Great, yeah, I was looking forward to that. I was looking forward to an excuse to go." So that was the first trip to China, and as you mentioned, Shungonkai was uh, sort of my sort of my host, the the barbarian handler, and uh, th that that visit surprised me because I I met with Jiang Zemin, I met with uh, uh, all of the 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 hierarchy in China. It was a it was a good visit. Carl Eikenberry was the defense attaché then, and he was very good and very helpful. Just for, for folks who haven't been to China on an official delegation, can you just describe what it's like to kind of land in Beijing uh, and what the rollout of a red carpet can yeah, look like yeah. when the Chinese want to be gracious hosts? Yeah. Well, and and they were they were pretty pretty nice at this at this one. You, one of the things that's a heady experience for a you know a boy from Tennessee is, is to go as sink pack and you you fly in a big uh, blue and white airplane and you land in Beijing and you and they they meet you there. It's a uh, but the headiness wears off in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like most honors, they wear off in a hurry. You get to work, but the uh, they you're you're met at the airport. Uh, you're whisked sort of into into Beijing. You it, for my that was my first visit to China ever, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm just soaking up lack of trees. Uh, uh, the it, the atmosphere, the smog, the but uh, but also very eager to eager to see him and and looking forward to it. Uh, Kai was a uh, has a, has a personality that is uh, he's very gregarious. He laughs a lot. Uh, he I don't he's. He's less condescending than some other Chinese are to visitors, uh, but he is—he's—he's uh, he's clearly given the party line. And so I was—I was subjected to getting the Japan lecture, uh, the Taiwan lecture, the Tibet lecture from them on you know this is this is how, not how we see this. This is how it is with these countries. You know we. And for the Japan ones, it is Japan is a militarist nation yeah. that's never apologized, and we need to watch out. We, the U.S. and China, yes. need to watch out for yeah. Japan. That's right. And if if you know if you think uh, Japan or or friends, you're mistaken. You know that and they, and then they can go on and again subsequent times with the Nanjing massacre and things like that. There, there's some legitimacy in that point of view that they have, and so. Uh, we we did we went through all of that. The other parts of like meeting President Jiang Zemin, the uh, as 
as people that have been there know, you go in, it's quite formalized, stylized, not very much of substance is discussed in these big meetings, but they're, they're, uh, you drink a lot of tea and you, you, you nod and you talk and you get, get to meet them. And this is, I, you know, it all seems like a bunch of, of just pomp to us, and, and it is, but it underlines one of the fundamental things, I think, of working with the Chinese is it's the start of building a relationship, and the relationship transcends contracts, transcends almost everything else. And I will say that, to my knowledge, I have always liked dealing with the Chinese. It hasn't always been easy. I don't always agree, but I, I enjoy it because by from the Chinese people with whom I've had what I consider a, a, a uh, forthright relationship, I've never been tricked by them. And, uh, and But that's not to say I haven't been tricked by them, but I've uh, not by people with whom I've You've taken the time to build a relationship. It's true in business, it's true in the military, it's true in the diplomatic stuff. And I, I, I've got a, another, what I think is a very insightful tale about, about that. So anyway, that visit went well. I, the, from the U.S. point of view, there are, there are a faction of people in the United States that uh, I think, and I think they still are, but fewer, that do never, they never want to miss an opportunity to poke China in the eye. And so they're hostile to any relationship you have. They've tried to accommodate one way or another. On the other hand, there, there are people that uh, live in a dream world about China that, you know, kumbaya, can't we all be friends? And it's not that either. It's somewhere in between, which is a, a respectful and wary relationship, but it, it can work. Uh, it's it's uh, in the wary stage right now, pretty much. You'd mentioned what it was like as the SINCPAC, as the PACOM commander, to pick up the phone and call other officials. And on the Chinese side, you went to China in September of 96, and you started to develop that relationship yes. with Chong Guangkai. Do you feel like and we'll move to your, your coming to Beijing as ambassador, but do you feel like during the rest of your time at PACOM in Hawaii, you could pick up the phone and call someone, or that was still a work in progress to build that work kind in of progress. Connectivity? Work in progress. And Shungguan Kai was sort of the official host. There was a, there were others I met. Zhang Wanyan, who was a member of the Central Military Committee, was an older guy, had fought in Vietnam and fought in the Korean War. We had a we got a particular rapport, and we were reviewing some event, and we were standing next to each other and talking through an interpreter, and uh, I really liked him, <laughs> and I and I uh, we had several over the years several subsequent events, but this first one we were standing next to each other, and there are younger troops out there that we were looking at, and. He, he initiated this conversation and said, it's very important that you and I and people of our generation uh, form relationships that can be seen by these young men and women 
so that in the future they don't have to start where we are, that they've, they've had a relationship over time. And I think that was very important. I would not say that is a view that's held by everyone there or here, but uh, it, it meant that a, an old war, somebody that actually been in combat, an old war dog and an influential guy had those thoughts. And I don't, and subsequent contacts that we had uh, bore out that that wasn't just fluff that he was giving, that, that was good. So I always liked, I always liked him and liked that. And that was part of that first visit, which gave me hope mm -hmm. and uh, that we could do this. But the communications with the PLA, they, the big thing from our government was, did you get access? Did they show you our, their secrets and stuff like that? Eh, some. They, they said I got more access than others, but that was, that was sort of the, the measure of success of a visit back and forth is how much access did you get. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the thing is the PLA then was still uh, organized in six regional districts, regional headquarters, and these regional commanders had a lot of horsepower. They were not, they didn't have a, de they had a Department of Defense, sort of, but it, they weren't funded. They didn't have the purse strings there. It wasn't until later on that Zhang Jiamen tried to bring that together. And the, so you had the six districts were, uh, had a, a fair amount of autonomy. And they tried to equate SyncPAC to you're like one of our military districts. Uh, not, not quite, you know. Let me fast forward to another event that happened in 97. Uh, I had been, I'd, I'd been vocal about trying to build these communications with, with China. It was sanctioned by Bill Perry and, uh, and, the Clinton administration to, to do this, but there are the people in the, the people that did not like anything about China always suspected that. Why are you trying to build this relation? Why do you want to be able to talk? And I said, so we can prevent miscalculation. Well, in 97, and I forget what month it was, Zhang Jiamen made his first trip to the United States and he came through Hawaii. And Ben Cayetano was the governor of Hawaii. And, but, uh, so together we were his host. And it, he flew on a commercial airplane to, to Honolulu. And Hawaii is kind of a place where people can visit the United States but not really feel like they're really uh, succumbing to the United States. But that, anyway, was the first stop for John Jiamen on his visit. <clears throat> Governor Cayetano was a, uh, uh, a Filipino extraction and a, a good guy, but he he would kind of duck out on, on some things like <laughs> so he got he didn't he didn't participate so much in this welcoming of John Jamin. But I had met him in China. I met him when he came. We we rolled out the red carpet for him coming through. I mean, this is a guy that's been 10 years in charge of a country of one point, then about 1.25 billion people. 
uh, he, he might look a little funny with his glasses and stuff, but pretty able guy. And uh, anyway, he came and we, we took him on a barge, which for people that don't know is not really a barge, it's a Navy uh, boat that's a, for that, but I borrowed St. Pat Fleet's boat. We took him around Pearl Harbor. And uh, two significant things occurred in that. We had, uh, I'm not one for breastfeeding and talking about how powerful we are. I think it, it shows itself. So I, I never use that type of rhetoric about our military power. It happened though we had a, a great number of attack submarines in Pearl Harbor that particular day. In the, in the harbor that day? Just, that were, by, just by chance. That were not, uh -huh. <laughs> Yes. They were visible. They were visible. Mm -hmm. And the, the China, we, we went on the barge around and looked at Pearl Harbor and right after he landed. And uh, so they ran out of film taking pictures of all these nuclear submarines. And, uh, but after a little bit, he came up and literally finger in the chest and, and sort of smiling, said, Admiral, what are, you, what are you doing in trying to talk to the PLA? And this is a story I use, have used a lot. He, he said, what are you trying to do? And I said, Mr. President, what we're trying to do is build some trust so that our military and your military don't miscalculate something and make a mistake and bring us into conflict that is not warranted. You know, we want, we, and he, he thought for a moment and he, he said these words and said them in English. He said, uh, trust is a little ways off. He said, before you can have trust, you must have understand, mutual understanding. And before you have understanding, you've got to have communications. And he said, we Chinese, he, now he was really smiling, are very far ahead of you in the communications, meaning that more Chinese speak English than do Americans. <laughs> and I've used that phrase a lot. Uh, that, I mean, they, and, but, when, but on a serious note, that stepping stone from communications to understanding if you're gonna negotiate, you've gotta understand the other person's point of view as well. And then to have trust is, uh, is a big deal. And he said, he further said, uh, we're working pretty hard on communications now. We are not at the understanding or trust point of view. And I'm not so sure we, we are yet. <laughs> and Jiang Zemin also the head of the military commission. Yes. In addition to being the president and head yes. of the Communist Party at that time. That's right. That's right. I, I want to get to the uh, your time as ambassador and to the EP3 incident, but maybe yeah. I could just preface it by starting it with the uh, Belgrade bombing uh, in yeah. 1999, uh, which was th those planes are not under the, the Pacific Command, but um, you were at PACOM at that time um, that the U.S. mistakenly bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. Yeah. What are your recollections about it, or? or what did Chinese officials talk to you about the next time you interacted with them? Uh, well, it was the, <laughs> it occurred about a week after I'd said I would, I would accept going to China as being an ambassador. So that, that put a 
made me very interested. Uh, the, um, it's a puzzling question still because the, even, even people that know a lot about it, it's hard, very hard to find out any facts about it. And uh, I know a lot about military targeting. What I, what I do know is that it, it wasn't a rogue flight crew that went and did this. They, they did what they were told to do. I think there was, a, and if I were if I were Chinese, and I look at, you know, we we talk about how effective our military is, how much how much well we do things. Uh, I'd be very hesitant to believe anything we said about that either that it was a mistake. So how could you make a mistake like that? And so, I I can say this because I don't know the facts. So the the I've talked to people who, who know some of them, but somewhere in the, the clamoring for more targets, which was Wes Clark, you know, asking more targets in this area, uh, we, I, th I think something happened hastily in the targeting process. It did not go through the normal bureaucratic selection of targets. They picked a target. I think there was a, a legitimate mistake in the mapping of how what, what they trusted for mapping. And we hit the hit the wrong hit the wrong thing. Now if I look at it through Chinese eyes, you not only hit our embassy, but you hit a particular part of our embassy, uh, that's not a mistake. So I don't, I'm not sure what the truth is. I, when I went to call on Zhang Zemin as ambassador. When you I, presented oh, your credentials? Yes, presented credentials. I told Yang Zhechur I was going to bring the subject up. And he said, no, 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 you know, you, you know don't, do, don't, don't, don't do it. Well, I did it anyway. And I, I said, you know, we, all I, all I said was, I don't know this, but I do know it was a mistake. And uh, they let that go without comment. You know, they just, but uh, it, it still sticks in their crawl. And as it, think what if they'd done it to us? I mean, it's sticking in our crawl too, so. So you <clears throat> are nominated <laughs> and the Senate yep. confirms you to be ambassador. Um, I still recall when you got to the embassy, and at that moment, the embassy was uh, on was holiday. <laughs> oh, I was going to talk about the physical building being less than impressive, <laughs> okay. but yes, the embassy was on holiday, um, and the building itself was an old Pakistani school, yeah. and um, was a little tired, shall yeah. we say? Yeah. Um, how did being ambassador differ, particularly when you first arrived, from being in the military and being the sink pack, the PACOM commander, how did you see those things differently, and and what were your expectations? And then when you landed on the ground, and yeah. you thought, oh, this is this is the job. Yeah. Well, I was really looking forward to it. Uh, uh, my, Suzanne was not so much. She'd run around a, a lot of the world a lot of the time, and she was ready to be here, you know. And so, uh, but. 
I, I was I was excited to do it. I also knew how to use authority, I think, which I think some ambassadors don't. The most people don't know that the at least in those days the only charter the ambassador has is about a two-page letter from the president, which gives you huge authority over everything that goes on in that country, including some some strange things that might go on in various countries that some ambassadors don't even know to ask about and how to how to use that authority. And I, th I thought I did. That but as a practical matter, the you know, you're talking about the shabby embassy, uh, the that didn't bother me so much as because it was functional, but the living conditions for the people there and the military we, you know, from the time you're weaned into the military, it's take care of the troops. And, and so I went to see the living conditions and also what went on in the consular section of the, the visa stuff was just abhorrent to me. And so we changed it fairly quickly. And uh, what, what really gotten in my knickers was people would come out from the State Department and they'd stay at the St. Regis. And then, and they said, gee, Beijing's a wonderful place. What, what, what complaints could you have about this? It's very nice. I said, yeah, that is there. And I'd done that too. And, uh, but we had people living in that, you talk about a Pakistani school building, the Stalin era living conditions where, I mean, literally, uh, I, one time I went and someone had sacrificed a, a goat in the public area of the, of the living the apartment compound. And the yeah. apartment compound. And so uh, we had a budget. And so very soon I sent what in the military we'd call an uno deer. It means unless otherwise directed. And I sent a, a cable to Secretary Albright and, and said, unless you tell me not to do this, this is what I intend to do. And I don't think the State Department exactly knew how to work with the, that type of message, which I was banking on. And uh, fortunately, we had a budget. As, so I said, henceforth, people that come visit from Washington are going to stay in this apartment complex, not in the St. Regis. Uh, the until we get the situation rectified, and where any new people coming in are going to be have an option of going to a apartment in town somewhere, and people that are living there have the option of leaving if they want to. And you know, some people have a couple of months left; they'll just stay, and some people didn't didn't care; they just stayed. But anyway, so we changed the living arrangement. I think the if the embassy had. Uh, foreboding about having a military person coming in, I think that helped. Uh, it, you know, it gave. So we, I never heard anything back from the State Department, so we did it. And because uh, people like we talked about, Jim Moriarty, he and Lauren were staying in a nice, really nice place that you'd be good anywhere. And, and others were too, but there was a great disparity. So that was one thing that was, uh, was a change. Uh, that we we did in a hurry. Uh, so one of those things, just as a staff member, that was very clear when you landed was 
you understood the importance of leadership from the ambassador for the embassy community and showing that for the staff and then also projecting that to the Chinese. And I think that that was very welcome from from the Chinese. Well, thank you. I I hope so. And it, where it, it, and then, you know, I'd had trouble getting a, a DCM come in. We talked to Evans Revere from Korea and these are people that lived in Beijing in the in the eighties and they, they weren't their families weren't coming back. And Gene, the first DCM that came Is it Gene Martin? Gene Martin came. And Gene was uh you know was was a really fine guy. His his main uh, asset as far as I'm concerned is he would come. <laughs> And uh, and he did, and he did he did a, a did a good job. And we, we have we had very different types of personalities, but but he was there and he did it. And then uh, Michael Marine came in, and Michael Marine came in, and he was a force, and he he did a did a really good job at that. But what you said about the embassy team, when this this led on up, not that was a year later. Uh, to the EP3 thing, the embassy team functioned like just great. We had some new players, and uh, but uh, it, w- it it was really uh, really something to behold, and a lot of good help. Uh, let's get into that that incident. Uh, All right. We were very fortunate as Americans to have a naval aviator as our ambassador when this incident happened off. Uh, Hainan Island, or I should say accident. I was rereading some of the history around it, and yeah. Colin Powell had said he wanted to make sure the term accident was used, that it wasn't kind of blown out of proportion. Yeah. Uh, can you just go into what happened and then your being called into the foreign ministry and, and how that ended up yeah. working and not working? Yeah. Okay. We had uh, at, at SyncPAC, I had asked about the information we got from these the flights, the routine flights that we had. What what are we getting? And that you know that's been a age old complaint of the Chinese that they're doing this. These are our flights. Just to be clear, these are U.S. military aircraft that are flying far off the coast of China, but they're yes, but they're in international waters, mm-hmm. and they're they're but they're not out in the Atlantic somewhere. They are off the coast of China, and so. Their, their information gathering, at which we do around the world in the preservation of peace. And so the, what, what it amounted to is we were flying uh, a multiple, whole number multiple of Flights more than we needed to to get the information, the same information. So I said, "Well, one, we're wasting some money," and so we had we had throttled back on the numbers of flights uh, when when I was at SyncPAC. Not a not a whole lot, but some. And uh, so this happened on April Fool's Day of ni- of 2001, and uh, Sunday, and uh, the. We, the first thing I got, I was in town. We'd been to, my wife and I had been to church. We were in town with another couple 
uh, a, a U.S. but Chinese descent business couple in D.C. I mean, I, not in Beijing. And uh, I got a call that we've we've got an airplane down, and and so it was about nine o'clock in the morning, nine o eight, as I recall. And uh, the uh, and and we had gotten this through from SyncPAC because the airplane had called back to SyncPAC, and and they so the first thing we knew is they were safe on deck. We so the airplane called saying they were going down, and then had already confirmed that they had landed. They safely. had landed when when I when the word filtered mm -hmm. to me. So I raced back to the embassy, nine o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock at night in D.C. I called Colin Powell. And we should recall these were new administration new officials. New administration. Because the Bush administration came in Late. only a few months yeah. know, earlier. And, and, and they, in fact, you know, Rumsfeld was one of the few people who had been confirmed in DOD. Colin Powell was there. And I had the benefit of having worked with Colin Powell before, not a whole lot, but some. We, we at least knew each other. And I thank the world of him. And, uh, and, and this experience made me think more of the world of him. <laughs> so anyway, we, I called him and told him what I knew of what had happened. Uh, Denny Blair was at SyncPAC. We got information, you know, the airplane was on deck and what had happened that they had been hit by a Chinese airplane. And uh, so I called the foreign ministry, and as I want to say, I, and I think they've got uh, caller ID, and they were not accepting any calls. And uh, so it was, it was 9 o'clock at night, and we had had the initiative to come in there. And then at 9 o'clock at night, they, they finally said, you must come to the, <laughs> and I've been ready all day to come, come talk to them. One of the tactics of Chinese negotiation is to oh, yes. make it uncomfortable for the yes. U.S. side, and so wait yes. until 9 p.m. at night and, yes. and then call someone in. So you're called in and, at 9 p.m. And, uh, and the Yang Zhechur had been the guy I dealt with most of the time. We have an interesting relationship, which is, uh, I think, respectful but not warm. And... Uh, and coming back from SyncPAC days when he was the designated hitter to chew me out on some things, and he did with great glee, I he's, thought. He's made a career out of, yes. out of that. And yes. it seems to have served him well. Yes, it does. <laughs> he does. Wang Yi may be a little milder mannered, but uh, we'll see. But uh, anyway, we, and Zhong, Zhou and Zhong, Zhou and Zhong, turned out to be my interlocutor. He had just come back from being ambassador to Australia, and he was a very good English speaker, but <clears throat> he wasn't friendly this time. And it, he said, you know, Mr. Ambassador, your airplane has invaded our airspace. It's landed without permission. We demand an apology and we demand reparations. And uh, I said, well, uh, our government does not agree with any of that. And so uh, I think you've got the facts wrong. And there was some huffing and puffing, and we departed. And so they had done what 
I'd studied Dick Solomon's book on negotiating with the Chinese a lot. And so the, the, they made their, made their declaration there. And uh, so uh, part of the negotiating technique and I, is, is, okay, here's our statement. It's your duty to disprove it. The maximalist statement yeah. starts, starts yeah. the conversation. And one of one of my friends, whom I won't name in case this thing gets publicized some way, is that the negotiating with the Chinese is a matter of building ladders for the Chinese to climb down. And uh, one of the uh, colleague from another country, who I think very highly, made that comment when we when I was looking for counsel, and he said, "So that's sort of where we were. They made a they made a statement, and then well, we'll lose face." If, if you don't, if you don't acknowledge this, and this bore itself out. Well, you you talked about having a naval aviator there. There are a lot of things I dealt with there that I didn't know too much about, where I was very dependent on the word of others and confidence in others. It happens that airplane intercepts are something I know a lot about, and I done it, and uh, so this was in. I had a lot of confidence in talking to the Chinese about what was possible and what was not possible in this uh, collision, that we finally agreed to call it a collision. And uh, the so there were two prongs here. One was the airplane was a sensitive airplane. Two, the crew was safe and they were in Hainan and we were wanted to get the crew out of there. And the crew was the more important of the two because the airplane wasn't, was, had a lot of sensitive gear, but we presumed they had been able to destroy a lot of it, which they had. Not all of it, but, but a lot of it. So uh, at this time, Neil Sealock was the defense attache, another Army, uh, was a brigadier general and, and was very, very good. <clears throat> I was itching to go to, ta to Hainan <coughs> myself because I wanted to muck with it down there. And uh, You're a take charge kind of ambassador. Well, I, but then uh, with, with some counsel and, and also thinking about it, the real fight wasn't there. It was in, in Beijing, so I needed to be in Beijing. So Neil went to Hainan and did a great job of carrying our water down there, and he did, did a, a bang-up job. Took a couple of henchmen with him and, and did, a, did a great job. So he was, he, we wanted to see the crew, and that took a couple of days. So Joe and Jong, when we started the next morning, we had a, we had a meeting. And uncharacteristically, he conducted it all in English, which was a which was a good sign. But it was it was quite tense at the time, and we needed you know President Bush had to have something to say about this, and so because you know, it had gotten out in the international press. Yeah, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, quickly. After. Yeah, so and there and needs to be some public yeah, acknowledgement and something but, to say. But about. all of this is going back and forth through. Colin Powell, who did, I will say, in all the negotiations, he was just wonderful of 
call me any time, night or day, and he would he would turn it in the Washington area and get back to me within an hour or so about okay, yes, no, maybe so, and gave and so I think we really sort of by turning it that fast, uh, okay, I'm ready for another meeting. Let's talk. This cowed the Chinese a little bit in this regard. Also, they were, uh, I think President Bush through Colin Powell were, were given moderate things to say. The crew is out, is safe, uh, they're not hurt, we'll, we'll get them, you know, the, you know, they're safe on deck. That was the initial thing of what he had to say. We've had, and uh, we, we did not come out and say that our airplane had been rammed by a, a Chinese airplane, which is in fact what happened. Okay, but. Can we just spend one minute on, on the, not the flight patterns, but for people who didn't follow it, there was a Chinese plane that yeah. had been okay. close yeah. in to yeah. the US plane. And yeah, yeah. Maybe you could just spend yeah. a minute or two about what, what yeah. actually happened in the air. The, the flights that we have is the airplane is an EP3. It's a very heavily loaded P3 aircraft, which was designed to be an anti-submarine aircraft, but it's had a lot of, it's a Lockheed Electra is, is the airplane. It's a four engine turboprop. Good airplane, but the, the ones that are the EP3s have a lot of extra weight on them. They're plotting airplanes that are not maneuverable and they fly at a fairly low airspeed, which is known as max endurance type, or a little bit above max endurance type airspeed. So they, their time in the air is lengthened, not, not range necessarily. But they don't have a lot of excess energy to maneuver at there. So the idea is get it up there, have it a slow yeah, flight path, yeah, and, and do its, its just, thing, and then come yeah, back and land. That's right. The Chinese were in the habit of intercepting airplanes, which we would do also if there are airplanes flying off our coast, and we do do. We did this during the Cold War. We, we, uh, and by intercept, you don't mean actually collide into. No, no, to I mean joining up on, joining up on them, shadowing, look at them, taking pictures of them, etc. So we, uh, they would, they would intercept these, and in the East China Sea. The intercepts were generally quite controlled and benign. In the South China Sea, a different command environment is all I have to say, basis on, is they were much bolder. You know, they would be more rapid rendezvous. Uh, and it, as it turns out, we had some information on the pilot of this airplane who was killed he, he, after this thing. But we had pictures of him showing his uh, email address, uh, one of them giving the international peace sign, the, the finger sign. And you're saying that, that, is, that his plane was so close to the U.S. plane that they the could, U.S. plane could take a photograph and see inside his cockpit on, on, and see. On previous intercepts. On previous intercepts. Previous intercepts. And he was, you know, this guy whose name was Wang Wei and I've avoided ever saying that in a public forum because it, if, if you get close to the English, it, it, it trivializes it. And so I'm not, but that was his name. And he, he joined up. And in this case, uh, what he did is he, 
when when you're joining on an airplane, um, the people who are listening to this can't see my hands here. But when they're when they're joining, you join at an angle, so you have both rate of closure and distance that you can work with to make it a self uh, a safe rendezvous. If you do, if you come in with too much closure rate, meaning come too close. Come, well, come too close too fast. Okay. You, your your rate of closure. You have to stop it in order not to hit the airplane. There, there's only really one way of doing it, and one is pull off. The other is a wing up, and you get your lift vector going that direction, and you stop it. Or what is the prescribed thing is you underrun. You do underrunning, and then you come back and try again at a more measured pace. So, anyway, what what happened with this guy is he. He apparently came in and had too much closure rate, and he knocked off the wingtip and knocked off one of the engines and knocked off the nose cone of the of the EP3, and then it damaged his airplane, and he went down. and If if he ejected, we don't know that, but he perished. Very, I'm, we're sorry, he lost him. But the the crew that flew the airplane ended up the pilot did a great job and of controlling the airplane he, they called an emergency the people on, on Hainan at the airfield in Hainan did what they're supposed to do under international law when an airplane's in extremis is they let him land now the Chinese if their communications were good could have parked trucks on the runway and kept him from landing. They didn't do that. They did what they're supposed to do down there. Which is to allow a distressed aircraft. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he he called on the emergency on the guard channel and that he did not get a response, but he came on in and landed. And uh, there were Chinese airplanes in the air that were close to him, but he came in and landed and all of that was what should have happened. Uh, now, the, there could, it won the back to the Chinese contentions. The, the collision occurred in international airspace. It did not occur in Chinese waters. He landed. Now, he, didn't, he did land. He didn't have verbal permission, but he had called for landing, and, and he didn't have a choice. He couldn't, couldn't go around. So he came in and landed. He did everything he could. He did not get a response to his calls. And the aircraft was damaged, so there's no the, way for it to fly back to its no, no, home. No, no, airfield. no, no. He couldn't. I mean, he had to He had to land right away. I mean, it was a bad, badly damaged airplane. So he would not have made it if he. And so uh, that, was, that was the situation we had. So what, in the negotiation with Joe and Zhang, we we got into, at first, whose fault is it? And despite, you know, they didn't have any aerodynamics guys on their side of the argument, and, but they would, they would say, you know, that our airplane ran into him. I said, no, that didn't happen. It couldn't, couldn't happen. Talked about speeds and all these things, and they, they, were, they stopped trying to make that point, but they said, uh, but, but they were stubborn about saying it was, it was our fault. Uh, so, and, and we were going nowhere because the argument was stalemated. It, it happened that uh, 
Ken Lieberthal was in, in Beijing on another project. And I'd known Ken from the Clinton administration. And remember, this is the Bush administration now. But, but Ken's a pretty savvy guy. And he, I asked him to come to the embassy. And we went into the tank, and I said, hey, what's going on here? And what I need to do right now is take a break. All right. So the, Ken, Ken came in, and he said, uh, you're, you're sort of stalemated right now in this, in this negotiation. The only uh, the, the thing I think you ought to do is, is stop arguing about whose fault it is. And, and then if you can call it something else, then you can get on with the negotiation. <coughs> so I had discussed the tack we were taking with Colin Powell, and he had approved. And I was antsy about calling him back and saying, hey, boss, uh, uh, you know what we're doing? I'd like, to, I'd like to take a different tack. But I did. And he said, mm, he, didn't, he didn't like it either. But he said, all right, go ahead. So we did. We, we said, I, we talked to Joe and John, who we had, a, we had good discussions. I mean, he, he was, uh, I knew he was getting a lot of guidance. And also concurrent with this was uh, we agreed to stop talking about whose fault it was because eventually, I think in a public forum, we would win that argument just over the, and, over and the I, physics. Yeah, uh, and I, I think they, they could maybe knew that. But the other thing was is we're their biggest trading partner got the 2008 Olympics coming up and WTO is still in the balance and so I think they were they were starting to think about these things and so that then was a shift is what I knew then is they wanted to solve this problem they they were stopped talking about you need to admit fault yeah but and you but, need to find some solution yeah to find a solution to this thing Quit. and can i just ask on the foreign ministry side i know joe and joe was there and very practiced then went on to be ambassador to the united states yeah on their side was there anyone from the pla who was there who spoke not that i recall joe and joe was the, the he was the, he was the guy the one who so after that uh you know, in the evenings or after this, I was doing some, you know, a couple of TV spots that were published back in the U.S. And I, I was, I was confident that we would solve this. Neil Sealock had seen, meantime, had seen the crew. They were doing okay. They were, you know, they they were they were going to do a hunger strike because they didn't like the food. And I, I mentioned this to Joe and John. <laughs> he said, "They're in a hotel." And Hainan, their lives are better than 98% of the Chinese. <laughs> They're on a hunger strike. You know, sort of give me a break. And, uh, but so I said, go so for it. So the crew it. was safe. Yeah, the crew was safe. And we knew that. And I was, at that time, I was confident we'd get them out. So I could, I could go on, on a public forum and say, this is, we're where we want to be right now. We're going to get this solved and say that with, with assurance. And, and my bosses could too. So that, 
that went up. But the negotiating went back and forth. And this, the, the saving face for the Chinese yielded what is, I hate this term, but the letter of the two sorries. I don't like that. But they, uh, they said, we've, you know, to get out of this, we've got to have, uh, they didn't say an apology, but they, uh, you know, I wanted to use the word regret. They said, no, we gotta have sorry. So one, I, I talked to Colin about this. I said, there are two things, and I was thinking a lot like now, can I, what can I live with for me that I, uh, I said, I can say that I'm sorry uh, your pilot was killed and I can say, I'm sorry you didn't hear us when we called to land. And so that's what we said we were sorry about. And then that's what was in the actual letter. The probably in the, you know, the various nuances of sorry and regret got, they, they worked that when they translated it to Mandarin. And uh, they, they, got, they got the letter. Also, it got distanced from the president, from the Secretary of State to the ambassador. So there was plausible deniability. And, and I understood all that. I, and and so, did, so did my bosses understand that. And so that, that, but that got the people out. We then made an arrangement for, they didn't, we could have flown the airplane out after some maintenance. And, the China, and they said, you can fly the airplane out on the 31st of May. Uh, yeah, 30th of May is what they said, because that's, it would take that long to fix the airplane and make it flyable. They told us we could do that. It, once we got the crew out, which was about 11 days after, uh, Colin said, this, this has got to shift to DOD and not be a State Department thing because it's a DOD asset. And Rummy is going nuts with this thing. And because uh, he hadn't even been mentioned in the whole stuff. So I said, okay. So I sent a cable to Secretary Rumsfeld and said, we've been working this in the State Department channels. Secretary Powell has told me it's now defense channels. I'm here. And basically I got back from him with sit down and shut up and we'll tell you what, what to do. And he sent a, a guy over whose name I don't remember. He was assistant secretary of something. And uh, he, he came in and there was no negotiating room for anything. And that's why we, the, and they said, they asked me what's going on. I said, I, I can't help this. You know, I can't solve this. I, I went back and said, we've got to talk to him. And he said, nope, nothing. This hard line, and and sorry, just to be clear, the DoD position was the plane should be able to leave, or it needed the, to the, the the DoD position. It was we're not going to give anything. We're not going to. We're not going to. We don't agree with anything. And just anyway, give us our plane back. Yeah, give us our plane back. And uh, there was there was no mutual understanding involved in this, and it was you know we're, because we say so is why. 
<laughs> and so the Chinese figuratively said, okay, watch this. And, uh, but so when we, we flew the, when we flew the crew out, we made an arrangement. It had to be a commercial airplane. And we'd flown an airplane from Guam, I think, into, into Hainan. They were going to load them on there at 7 o'clock in the morning for no, no press, no nothing. I think they, the Chinese actually had a little press, but we, we agreed that. But right before the airplane was supposed to take off, about, I think it was about 10 o'clock at night, Beijing time, which had been mid-morning. Uh, yeah, that's about right. I got a call from Rich Armstead, who Cohen was in Europe at that time. He said, hey, Joe, we got a problem. What's that? You know, we're right in the 11th hour here. And he said, Rummy won't let the airplane take off from Guam. And I said, what? He said, and then I said, and you want me to call him, right? And there's some history with Rich Armitage in, in Rumsfeld that... Uh, Not necessarily positive history. No, no, no. No, it wasn't. And I, I, of which I was aware. And uh, he said, yes. So I called him, and he was—he took the call right away, and uh, uh, and he said, "I'm just—you know—we don't have anything in writing from the Chinese. We don't have—you know—what what if they embarrass the president? You know, do this, I said, sir. They've—they've they've advertised over here. They've said they're going to do this. They—they—they're going to do it. They—they they don't do stuff in writing. You know, it's a—it's and and I said you can blame me." You know, if it, if it falls, blame me. He said, no, no, I don't want to, I'm not looking for somebody to blame. I just I just want to protect. And I, I think I have to give him credit for being sincere in this. You know, he's playing hardball. And and I was just short of saying, let me, let me see, is it Rumsfeld, is it IE, or is it just FELD? And can I have your social security number? And I went, and, uh, and, and, uh, I, I didn't do that, but I was thinking along those lines, and uh, if, if this deal falls through, and so he said, "No, no, I'll, okay, all right." So we did, and I called Dick, I called Rich Armitage back, and he said, "He's already called. It's on." You know, we, so uh, the airplane went. They picked him up. They took him out, but we didn't get the airplane out, and that we got the airplane out in pieces, and. Uh, so I attribute that to a flawed negotiation, and uh, that that was the that was the one one thing I wanted to add. The other part of this is when the foreign ministry I couldn't get them to to do stuff, and so through Yung Ching Hong we had talked. Uh, when I came to be ambassador, because I had met him before, and he he had said, uh, "We really can't be seen together." <laughs> you know, he said it'll hurt my reputation. You know, and uh, I mean it was it was okay. He said, "But we just can't." You know, you don't know it yet, but you don't want to be seen with me, and I don't want to be seen with you, but. There, I, there's my guy is Daibinguo, and he said, you, you talk to Daibinguo, he will speak for me. 
So in this thing, I talked to Di Bingwell, and he he was getting word to the foreign ministry wasn't passing word up the line. He did it, for, and he I can't remember even now what his job was. It might have been it wasn't the Communist Party school, but it was he. This is Di Bingwell. Yeah, he was probably in charge of the Communist Party's international department. I think that's right. Yeah, and so. He did that, and he later on I thanked him, and he said, "What are you thanking me for? I didn't know what." I, you know, I, and uh, but anyway, he there. I used a few capillaries. The other guy was the head of the Bank of China, and uh, and Liu Mingkang at the time. Liu Mingkang, mm-hmm. yeah, right. and uh, talked to him, and they they got word up the line, what I call the capillaries of the system, you know, the bypass. Having other lines of communication than just the foreign ministry was yeah. helpful to yeah. make sure the system understood what was yeah because I wanted the leadership to know what what we were trying to do and and I I did not have confidence that it was getting out of the foreign ministry up the line so anyway those those two things occurred and they uh, and and I don't know which of that worked or didn't work. But flooding the zone was a way to yeah, make sure yeah, that yeah, all of yeah. as, as much information as possible yeah. got passed up. To yeah. the, to the and so, there. you know, some of these cups of tea were, were worthwhile, or a beer maybe were worthwhile. So that was, uh, that, was, that was a piece of it. And so it ended up what I think was a, a, a good success. One, we didn't go back to Tiananmen Square. We kept it where it was... It was solved satisfactorily for both sides, and it didn't create a a worse flap. I mean, it it could have been a huge flap. I mean, like like the Belgrade bombing could have been a huge flap. You know, it's uh and so I I was and then I left shortly thereafter, and that was uh I came I came back the, uh, in early May. Right, very much shortly. Yeah, after. yeah. So that was uh, th- that was it. The other the other part is, oh, I, 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 Li Jiaxun, I mentioned that former foreign minister uh, at the time, foreign minister, former ambassador the, of the United States. Yeah, and I had met him what before I went to China when he was ambassador to the U.S. But after we were having a, a press conference, and Faye Sim was the was the interpreter, and uh, Lee talked at the thing and said, "You know, you Americans don't understand about having lost the pilot, and he, you know he's got a son that'll grow up without a father, and you know he, he was, and uh, I, I said, Mr. Minister, nobody understands that better than I do, and." Uh, and he looked at me funny, like that. And and I didn't I didn't say anything more. But but Faye start Faye was trying to interpret it. And she knew my story, and she started crying. <laughs> and that I mean just some some of the the posturing that goes on is is amazing. Now having said that, because we're about to wind up here, uh, I, you may have another couple of questions, but. I sort of along the lines that I talked about with uh, dealing with the Chinese these days. I 
I really enjoy uh, working with the Chinese. I think they're fun. They they have a good sense of humor. They're little uh, body sometimes, which is suits my uh, instincts a bit. And so I I think there there is is hope to do it. The other question about these are times. These are we're talking uh, early two thousands now. We're nearly 20 years later uh, it's the things are very testy and seem I, I only know what I read and uh, there's and what you read is almost all of it is biased one way or another so I, I try to filter that but the you know if you if if you get too proud nations that bring it you know to a confrontational stuff and neither is going to give an inch there's a there's a negotiating tactic that is there too but uh, it it's not a good situation to have to go to the mat over every issue and I think the you know, one of the, the things that again happened early on it got asked the question the difference between the the idea in the United States of manifest destiny and the idea of the Middle Kingdom. And here you have two entities, different styles of government, uh, conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Whether this nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. You've got two different styles of government there that can, can either work together which I think they can or not. I think the what one of the things that I don't agree with it, but I think we don't understand about the Chinese. I don't agree with the Chinese position on this. Is uh, falsifying records to get into schools and doing other things like that is an accepted practice. Uh, stealing, uh, if you can get information. And, and we call it stealing, they just call it getting information, that's accepted practice. They don't, they don't see that that's, I don't think that they see that it's a moral wrong. It's a, it's a business practice. If you can get away with it, it's all right. These are, these are problems we have to understand about each other. So. Sir, maybe just as a summary, you, you mentioned negotiations a couple of times. Yeah. Are there lessons you think going forward we can keep in mind from your time both as the sync pack yeah. and as the ambassador on how to negotiate in a lot of ways uh, China has changed and opened yeah. up and become more prosperous yeah. in other ways their Marxist Leninist system hasn't changed and yeah. so dealing with their officials in some ways really hasn't changed that much so is, is there some guidance that you can kind of give us and give uh, our successors at the embassy and, yeah. and in the U.S. government and, and in business and other areas on kind of how to negotiate with the Chinese or, or principles I've, or lessons. I'm not. I'm not sure what I have. My pontification would be helpful, but I talked about reading Dick Solomon's book about it, which helped helped me a lot. But I think in in any negotiation, and this is sort of a generalized thing, but it it, it is. If you, you enter a negotiation, the uh, sort of the American way of doing stuff is to let's get
get busy and get to it. I think first you have to realize what are the hard points you have to get out of it and what would you like to get out of it. You also, you also have to understand that about the people on the other side of the table. What do they have, you know, they have to get. President Clinton was good at this. I mean, he knew this guy's not going to be able to deliver that. You know, he can't do that. And whereas we, well, he's got to deliver it, you know. Well, he can't do it. And so you've got to know what they have to get out of it, what they'd like to get out of it. That's, that's a lot of thinking and a lot of serious work to, to figure that out about any negotiation, particularly a big, complex one. And then we, you also, on the, on the bigger negotiations, you're not just negotiating it. It's not like buying a tire. You know, it's, a, it's, it's not just a military thing. It, it, it's the whole of government and, and all of these things. And you've got to realize uh, that these capillaries are going on all the time. And just whoever's talking across the table to you are not necessarily the only conduits for information. So then if you know those things, then you start negotiating and figuring out what you can give up and what not. Now, I've heard uh, some NSC people talk about a negotiation. Is, uh, it was a great negotiation. We got every expletive deleted thing we wanted, and they didn't get anything. That's not a good negotiation. That's a negotiation if you're never going to see the person again or never do anything again. But if you're, if you're going to have a continuing set of negotiations, they're going to be trying to stick it to you every chance they get. And which is, so people have to get out of it something. So I think in our, our negotiating, we need to be very much aware of that and then have who the negotiator is, and if it's the president and Xi Jinping, one, they should not be the negotiators. There's got to be a fallback position because they can't save face. That's where you get plausible deniability. Let the and in the Chinese, my experience is in negotiating. Sometimes the decision maker is in the third row, and pretty handy to know that <laughs> who who and so the the actual the actual negotiator can can be sacrificed <laughs> in this thing like the letter of the two sorries the, the negotiator can be sacrificed if they need to be to get get the solution you need so that that's along those lines about all I've got let's um no, no need to be modest. Thank you, uh, Mr. Ambassador Admiral. Great to see you again. I really appreciate your time and, uh, and your insights uh, this, this afternoon. James, treat to be with you. Thanks so much. Admiral Joseph Preer speaking with me from Virginia Beach, Virginia. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.